0: When someone dies unexpectedly, they leave behind loved ones reeling in shock and confusion. Why did it happen? Was there something I could have done to stop it? Were there signs? But what happens when a death is so mysterious and strange that it's impossible to even know what questions to ask, and the answers don't begin to illuminate what really happened? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who would probably never stop searching for answers if their loved one died mysteriously and unexpectedly, even if that search only led me to more questions than answers. In today's episode, we'll look at the life and extremely mysterious and suspicious death of Ray Rivera, the man who, in 2006, was found dead under an impossibly small hole in the roof of a hotel with a murky past of its own. Where will our search for answers take us, and will we ever learn the truth about Ray Rivera? Ray Omar Rivera was born on June 10, 1973, in Madrid, Spain, to Puerto Rican-American parents. His father was an officer in the Air Force stationed in Spain. In 1987, Ray's father retired from the military and the family finally settled down in Orlando, Florida. In high school, Ray was a high achiever, taking AP classes and joining the school's brand new water polo team in 1990. Despite having never played water polo before, Ray's older brother, Angel, told the Orlando Sentinel.
1: He uh, took to that sport like that's what he was meant to do really excelled at that, to the point where he was part of the team that brought Winter Park their first state championship in water polo.
0: Ray went on to play water polo in college and even briefly played professionally in Spain before moving to Los Angeles in 1998, where he hoped to make it as a screenwriter. But, like all of us who moved to L.A. to pursue our dreams in show business, Ray had to get a survival job. He took a job coaching water polo at Burroughs High School in Burbank, a suburb of L.A., His co-coach, George Okapian, told the LA Times that Ray had a profound effect on the students he coached. And then, in 2000, Ray met Allison Jones. Ray was a tall, well-built, very handsome guy with a big, bright smile. I'm sure he caught a lot of women's eyes. But Allison caught Ray's eye, and the two fell in love. By 2004, the couple had been living together for two years, but Ray still hadn't found success as a screenwriter. Enter Porter Stansberry, Ray's high school buddy who had started a financial research team because it is an immutable fact of nature that with a name like Porter Stansberry, you have to be involved in the world of finance. Don't look at me, I don't make the rules. In 2004, Stansberry offered Ray a job in Baltimore writing a financial advice newsletter called the Rebound Report. The newsletter was supposed to advise investors on stocks that were failing, but that the company thought would turn around. Aside from being a writer, though, Ray didn't have a single qualification for this job, as far as I can tell. I have to assume that the financial information was provided to him by one of the actual financial advisors, and Ray turned that information into readable content for potential investors. And sure, writing stock tips is a far cry from writing screenplays, but ask any writer and they'll tell you all about the ridiculous writing jobs they've taken to pay the bills. I have a friend who's an aspiring comedy writer who got paid to write a serious piece about menopause medications for AARP. It can't all be Shakespeare. Allison would later tell investigative journalist, documentarian, and podcaster Stephen Janis that Ray took the job in order to save money so he could provide a better life for the couple. And in keeping with tradition, Ray also took a job as an assistant water polo coach at Johns Hopkins University, which is particularly interesting because apparently Stansberry paid pretty well. By 2006, Ray was plagued with guilt about his job. According to Makita Brotman's 2018 book, An Unexplained Death, the true story of a body at the Belvedere. He was feeling in over his head to begin with, giving financial advice when he had no financial background. But he was now faced with the very real possibility that his work could have caused people to lose their life savings. The stress from the job was infecting Ray's personal life. Bratman wrote, For a while, Allison is seriously worried about the complex mess Ray seems to have got himself into and the toll it is taking on him. He starts to suffer from insomnia. Every evening when he gets back from a long, fretful day at the office, he stays up into the early hours of the morning playing video games to wind down. It's not like the normally laid-back Ray, thinks Allison, to be so uptight. End quote. But it wasn't just the stress of being out of his depth giving financial advice. According to Allison, it was also just the monotonous grind of a desk job that was wearing Ray down. She told Stephen Janis,
2: He didn't like the 8-to-5 period. He wasn't a desk guy, and he just didn't
0: believe in what he was doing. Same, friend. Same. And so, in early 2006, he and Allison planned to move back to Los Angeles so Ray could pick up where he left off with his dream to become a screenwriter. The story incubating in his head was a screenplay about a female water polo player who makes it in the Olympics, with the working title Midnight Polo. Ray quit the newsletter and took a freelance job to make ends meet until they could afford to move, making videos for Agora Incorporated, which happened to be the parent company of Stansbury & Associates. By May of that year, the couple still hadn't moved to L.A. On the 16th, Allison was in Virginia on a business trip. Her colleague Claudia was staying as a house guest in the couple's beautiful suburban home. At 5.30 p.m., Allison called Ray to check in, and the call went to voicemail. By 10 p.m., he hadn't called back, so Allison called Claudia to see if Ray was home. Claudia told Allison that Ray had gone out suddenly, earlier, taking Allison's car. She went around the house calling his name, but Ray wasn't there. At 5 a.m. the next morning, Claudia called Allison to let her know that Ray still hadn't come home. She said that around 6.30 p.m. the night before, Ray got a phone call and apparently said, oh shit, and left the house in a hurry. According to Makita Bratman's book, Allison is the one who reassured Claudia that everything would be all right. She figured he must have gone out and had too much to drink and stayed over at a friend's house. Brotman wrote, quote, she calls Ray's phone again. There's no answer. So she leaves another message asking him to call, then showers, gets dressed, and packs her suitcase. When she calls her husband again and there's still no response, she starts to realize something must be wrong. Normally, she and Ray talk to each other five or six times a day. It's not like him to ignore so many calls. But then, Allison does not worry easily. She's experienced, worldly, and used to dealing with unpredictable situations. At first, she thinks Ray must have left his phone somewhere. She keeps calling. Eventually, her calls go directly to voicemail, which means Ray's phone battery is dead. End quote. Allison then called anyone she could think of that knew Ray. It seemed no one had heard from him. Then she got home and found his Invisalign on the counter, and that's when she started to panic. And so, at 3 p.m. that day, May 17th, she filed a missing persons report and called in Ray's family, her parents, and friends to come help search for him. After six days of searching with no luck, Allison's parents spotted Allison's car in a parking lot around the corner from the Belvedere Hotel. It's not completely strange that Ray might have ended up in that area. Stansbury's offices were near the Belvedere, and it just so happened that the phone call Ray got before leaving the house was from the Stansbury offices. Maybe he had gone to meet someone for business at the hotel. The parking attendant told Allison the car must have entered the lot after 6 p.m. on Tuesday the 16th because he had left by then and didn't see the car when he left. But he saw it there the next morning when he came to work. But there was the car. Where was Ray? Ray. The next day, May 24th, three of Ray's co-workers decided to search the parking garage of the Belvedere. To be honest, I don't know what inspired this decision. Maybe they were searching every parking lot in the area. At any rate, it was on the roof of the parking structure that they peered down over the edge and noticed a small hole described by Makita Brotman as bigger than a frisbee but smaller than a hula hoop in the roof of a two-story building below the parking structure attached to the Belvedere Hotel. The hole was certainly odd, but wouldn't have been cause for concern on its own. It wasn't until the men noticed the large brown flip-flops, the cell phone, wallet, and keys lying on the roof near the hole that their hackles must have gone up. Something was definitely not right. So, before we venture through that hole in the roof, a little context on the Belvedere Hotel in Baltimore. The Belvedere opened in 1903 as an upscale haunt for celebrity clientele. According to a 2020 piece in Newsweek, the hotel hosted movie stars, athletes, presidents, British royalty, as well as members of the literati of the early 20th century. But by 1909, the suicides began. Not quite rivaling the infamous Cecil Hotel of downtown Los Angeles, the Belvedere still saw its fair share of suicides and murders and grisly deaths. It seems to me hotels are a popular place for desperate people to go to end their lives. It really makes you feel for the housekeeping staff, who inevitably are the ones who discover the bodies. Except for that one time in 1936 when two young women somehow got their legs caught between the elevator shaft and the ledge, and in a bizarre twist, were trampled to death by terrified guests. Don't ask me. In 1991, the hotel was turned into condos, with the ballroom, restaurant, and lounges left available to the public. Ray's body was found in a defunct and abandoned conference room. The state of decomposition of his body meant he'd been there for a while. The autopsy report is truly horrific, so I'm going to make someone else read it.
2: Two cuts to the forehead, one of which is four inches long. Fractures to the nose and jaw. Four ejected teeth.
0: Ejected teeth. Ejected.
2: Fractures to the cheekbone, multiple fractures to the skull, from the top of the spine to the eye sockets, resulting in a brain hemorrhage, torn neck muscles leading to further hemorrhage, cuts and bruises to the chest, two fractures to the collarbone, 24 broken ribs.
0: 24 ribs? That's literally every rib
2: which have punctured the heart and lungs and damaged the liver, a broken pelvis, cuts and tears to the right groin and testicle, many cuts and bruises on the torso, in addition to two enormous lacerations on either side, one 9 by 7 inches long and the other 9 by 4, torn skin on the front and back of the arms, Legs cut so badly that muscles and tendons can be seen. The right leg broken in two places with bone protruding through the skin.
0: When investigators peered up through the hole to try to determine where Ray might have fallen from, they saw a chair dangling off the edge of the roof of the Belvedere, apparently caught on something. So obviously Ray was pushed or jumped or fell off the roof. Right? As far as Baltimore police were concerned, Ray Rivera killed himself. The day after Ray's body was discovered, the Baltimore Sun ran a story that quoted police saying his death was being treated as a suicide. But there was the very real problem of how Ray could have possibly gotten up to the roof of the Belvedere. According to author Makita Brotman, quote, The roof is reached via a ladder in the attic, but the attic is hard to find. There are two ways to get there. One is through a door accessible only to staff at the back of the 13th floor nightclub. The other way is through a door in the service area next to the kitchens on the 12th floor, which is also off limits. The door is marked no entry. A resident's key card is needed in order to take any of the building's four elevators, but even the card will take you only to the 10th floor. To go any higher, the elevator must be unlocked by the concierge. End quote. However, Brotman also admits, quote, It is true that in 2006, when Rivera found his way to the roof, the elevator was often left unlocked. Many of the fire doors were not alarmed, the security cameras didn't always work, And the bartenders at the 13th floor would go up to the roof to smoke, so the roof access door was usually left unlocked. End quote. Indeed, the security cameras on the roof for the day in question had been disconnected. Because of course they were! If Ray had managed to get up to the roof of the Belvedere, the hole in the conference room roof through which he fell was far enough away from the Belvedere that Ray would have had to have launched his body 45 feet from his jump point, which, if it was physically possible, would have meant that he would have had to have taken a serious running jump in flip-flops. Have you ever tried to run in flip-flops? You're not going to get any kind of useful speed. If Ray didn't jump, but rather was pushed, whoever pushed him would again have had to hurl Ray's 6'5, 250 pound body 45 feet out from the building. It just didn't make sense. Another possibility was that Ray jumped from the roof of the parking structure that his friends were standing on when they first noticed the hole in the roof below. But again, the hole was still pretty far out from the roof of the garage, and it would have only been about a 20-foot fall, which is, generally speaking not enough to kill a person. And even if that fall would have been lethal, it would not account for the extent of injuries to Ray's body. You don't get 24 broken ribs, ejected teeth, and cuts and tears to your testicles with a 20-foot plunge. I'm no doctor, but I feel pretty confident about that. But you don't have to take my word for it. Despite Baltimore police insisting that Ray killed himself by jumping off a nearby point, there was at least one person in the department who disagreed. Detective Michael Bayer did not believe Ray could have physically made either jump from the roof of the Belvedere or the parking structure, and that if he had somehow made the leap from the parking structure, the injuries on his body would not have been so severe. Another theory as to where Ray jumped from was the 11th floor ledge that wraps around the Belvedere. But Detective Bayer told Unsolved Mysteries.
1: From there, it's possible. But to get to those ledges, you had to go through somebody's personal property. You had to go through an office. You had to go through a room. You had to go through a condo. None of the hallways just left out to the ledge. And the windows are half windows, which barely even open if they open at all.
0: It's hard to imagine that a man of Ray's stature simply walked through someone's apartment or office and climbed out their window. Hell, it's hard to imagine someone of Ray's stature walked through the lobby of the Belvedere without anyone noticing him. Detective Bayer said,
1: No one could give us any indication that Ray was inside that building. No one saw this man that night. No witnesses.
0: Of course, there were the Belvedere security cameras that surely would have caught Ray walking through the building at some point. But the security camera footage issue is a bit of a mystery. A local NBC affiliate reported on May 17, 2007, that, quote, The Belvedere Hotel has an extensive security camera system, but a technical problem prevented police from recovering the data from the cameras on the days in question, end quote. However, Detective Bayer told Unsolved Mysteries...
1: At the beginning of the investigation, I tried to determine whether Mr. Rivera was in the hotel at all. So I checked the cameras in the hotel and there was no footage of him anywhere.
0: It may be worth noting here that the day after Ray's body was found, a piece in the Baltimore Sun claimed that he had fallen through not one, but two roofs, which was obviously not true, not to mention ridiculous. So it is possible that the local NBC affiliate's reporting was also inaccurate, which begs the question, was someone giving them false information on purpose or was it just sloppy journalism? And then there was the matter of Ray's personal effects found on the roof of the abandoned conference room near the hole. Ray's flip-flops, cell phone, wallet, and keys were sitting on the roof near the hole through which Ray apparently fell. Miraculously, especially given the state of Ray's body from the alleged fall, his cell phone didn't have a scratch on it. Ray's flip-flops, on the other hand, had drag marks on the toes and one of them had a broken strap. Maybe it's just me, and lord knows I'm a klutz, but don't cell phones break kinda easy? I have broken or cracked every single cell phone I have ever owned. A technician from Sprint once wagged his finger at me and said, this is a very expensive piece of equipment, you should be more careful. And I was like, bitch, you don't think I don't know how expensive this shit is? I'm just kidding. That was before my current iteration in life in which I take no shit from anyone. So I just bowed my head in shame and forked over another $500 for a new phone, which I promptly dropped down three flights of stairs. Anyway, Makita Brotman wrote, quote, I ask two friends, one a physicist and the other an expert on the technology of electronic devices, for their opinions. They both say the same thing, that it is unlikely the phone would be intact after the fall, but not impossible. For example, it might have stayed in Rivera's trouser pocket since his body appeared to have remained upright and came out only when he hit the roof. End quote. To which, I might add, how could Ray's body have fallen all that way and remain upright if he had to clear 45 feet between the launch point and the hole. The only way it seems to this layperson that a body would remain in an upright position while falling is if they were falling straight down after either stepping off or being dropped off a launch point directly above the landing spot. So, with no answers to any of these mysterious questions, Baltimore police were like, this is a suicide, nothing to see here, folks, while the medical examiner on the case said the cause of death was undetermined. Ray's wife, Allison, told Unsolved Mysteries that the medical examiner pulled her aside and said, I know what they're trying to do, and we are not closing this case. Author and investigative journalist Steve Janis, on the other hand, is more cynical about the medical examiner's determination. He told Makita Brotman, quote, "...the fact that the medical examiner had classed it as undetermined means nobody's going to ask any questions. This is what they do rather than admitting that they're out of their depth. They just have too much work to handle. I think there's enough evidence with Ray's death to call it a homicide. If they'd just done a little more work and ruled it a homicide... It could have been a whole different case, end quote. One homicide detective told Allison, you have to get it through your head that your husband jumped off the roof himself, which just seems, I don't know, insensitive, not to mention, as we've learned, probably impossible given the physics. Detective Michael Bayer was the lone voice in the Baltimore Police Department who didn't think Ray killed himself. And then, wouldn't you know, Detective Bayer was transferred off Ray's case three weeks later. Ray's family and friends strongly disagree with the police's determination that Ray had killed himself. Ray's brother, Angel, was adamant that Ray wasn't under any kind of mental duress, took no psychiatric medications, and showed no signs whatsoever that would have led anyone to think he was going to harm himself. Allison insisted that Ray was really looking forward to having a family and that he had a lot to look forward to. There was no way, as far as Ray's loved ones were concerned, that Ray killed himself. Allison told Unsolved Mysteries,
2: He ran out of the house saying that he was late for something. Who says, oh, it's 6.30, time to jump off a big roof. I kept saying there's something bigger. There's something going on. I know that he didn't kill himself.
0: Besides, there was no note, which is to say there was no suicide note. While going through their house trying to find anything that might explain how and why Ray ended up dead on the floor of a defunct conference room in downtown Baltimore, Allison found a document typed in small font and apparently folded up to a two-inch by two-inch square taped to the back of Ray's computer. The note has become a furious point of debate within the online discussions of this case. Over on Reddit, one user claimed to have transcribed as much of it as they could, I guess from photos of it, probably the ones shown on Unsolved Mysteries. This Reddit user claimed that after much research and digging, they determined the note is evidence of, quote, a psychotic break or schizophrenic ramblings, end quote. The document is, on its face, pretty odd. According to what the Reddit user could transcribe, the note begins,
3: Brothers... And sisters, right now, around the world, volcanoes are erupting. What an awesome sight. Whom virtue unites, death will not separate. That was a well-played game. Congratulations to all who participated. I hope you enjoyed it. But it was time to wake up, so here I am. I'd like to welcome those who accepted our invitations from membership during the game, we couldn't have done it without you. I couldn't have done it without you. I look on this endeavor to find the truth, but for its own sake, in accepting this quest for the truth, I hope to awake myself with the help of others into a man ready and worthy to receive it.
0: Um, sorry, What? And that's just the beginning. There are lists of movies and books he liked, celebrities' names, names of family and friends, lists of technological advances and devices like DVDs, The Human Genome Project, and overnight express shipping, and references to different places around the world, including this passage.
3: In Asia, you will be able to find me in Thailand. Another job well done, Porter.
0: Referring to Porter Stansberry. We'll post a link to the Reddit page. Please remember that it's Reddit, so take it with a grain of salt. Allison searched for the phrase, whom virtue unites, death will not separate, and discovered it was a reference to Freemasons, which, of course, internet people lost their minds over because you can't say Freemasons without people thinking about the Illuminati, the Skull and Crossbones Society, or some New World Order shit. To be fair, secrecy breeds conspiracy, but I fail to believe that the Freemasons are some nefarious cult of people trying to take over the world, especially considering there's a huge billboard on I-95 in Providence advertising for them. Then again, that's exactly what you'd expect a new World Order cult to do. Anyway... Allison told Unsolved Mysteries that Ray was interested in secret societies and she thought maybe he was thinking about writing a movie about them. And it is possible that he was interested in joining the Freemasons. He had apparently reached out to the Maryland chapter, but the person he spoke to told a local news reporter that his conversation with Ray was nothing unusual. Apparently, Porter Stansbury and Brad Hopman, a former Stansbury employee who was also a friend from childhood, reported that in the weeks leading up to Ray's death, he had asked them both about the Freemasons. Hopman also said Ray asked if he could visit Hopman's top floor apartment in Jersey City alone, though apparently he never did. That said, the note is very strange. But Allison insisted that Ray wrote almost everything down. And a lot of it could have just been stream of consciousness thoughts he intended to use in scripts he was writing. Why he found the need to type it all out, though, is a bit of a sticking point. Another sticking point is that for all their insisting that Ray's behavior wasn't unusual leading up to his death, Allison did point out some, well, really unusual behavior. In the weeks leading up to his death, Allison said Ray exhibited some edgy, nervous, and paranoid behavior. After a trip back to L.A. that spring, Ray started insisting on accompanying Allison wherever she went. She said he was more protective than usual. She wanted to go for a run at a local track, and he came with her, sitting in the bleachers reading a book while she ran. She said that while she was running, a man appeared. I don't know if she meant on the track or in the bleachers, but whatever the case was, Ray apparently freaked out over it. The man left without incident. Allison didn't mention any of this in the Unsolved Mysteries episode. She did tell reporter Stephen Janis about it in 2009, which begs the question, why did she not mention it for Unsolved Mysteries? Was she trying to downplay his weird behavior in an attempt to have people believe he wouldn't have killed himself? I'm not necessarily faulting her if that's why she left it out. If she really does believe that someone killed Ray, it stands to reason that she might leave out some pieces to have her story be more believable. She did tell Unsolved Mysteries about how their home alarm went off in the middle of the night twice in the days leading up to his death. Ray apparently responded to the alarms with what Allison said was a level of fear in his eyes that scared her to death. The second time the alarm went off in the middle of the night was the night before Ray went missing. Allison also said there was evidence that someone had tampered with a downstairs window of theirs from the outside. It's sort of impossible to know if this weird behavior was a sign of a mental health episode or if maybe Ray had real cause to be paranoid some people point to Ray's reference to the 1997 movie The Game as a clue. The Game, in case you've had the good fortune to have not seen it, stars Michael Douglas and human ashtray Sean Penn, and is slow and supremely silly, and I will never get that two hours that felt like five, back. Basically, a man is driven to a point of extreme paranoia on purpose because that's apparently how rich people get their kicks? I could go into more detail, but considering it was only one of maybe a dozen or more movies listed in the note, I don't think it warrants taking up any more of our time. Some people believe that Ray somehow got caught up in something illegal or shady and was gotten rid of. Or, as Ray's brother Angel believes, maybe someone lost a lot of money based on Ray's advice, and the person blew a gasket and murdered Ray. While the Unsolved Mysteries episode doesn't point any fingers, Ray's best buddy and former boss, Porter Stansberry, doesn't come across great. Aside from Ray's family, Porter was the most important person in Ray's life. He was Ray's best friend since high school and the person who convinced Ray to uproot his and Allison's life and abandon his dreams of becoming a screenwriter in L.A. to move to Baltimore to work for him. But he apparently refused to be interviewed for the episode. And Detective Bayer claims that he not only refused to cooperate in the investigation, but that he also put a gag order on his whole company so that no one could talk to police about the investigation. Stansberry disputed Netflix's gag order claims, though. He told the Baltimore Sun that he was, quote, "...shocked and hurt by the insinuations made by Unsolved Mysteries." He says the reason he never commented was because he didn't think there was anything to say. He believed Ray killed himself and that he didn't have anything useful to contribute to the investigation. Furthermore, Porter Stansberry claimed that the phone call Ray got before leaving his house in a hurry that came from the switchboard at Stansberry & Associates couldn't have come from his company because every one of his employees was away at a retreat. In fact, the phone call came not from the Stansberry switchboard, but from the parent company switchboard that owned both Stansberry and the company Ray was freelancing for at the time of his death. Regardless, why hasn't the person who made that phone call come forward? They must have realized by now that it was their phone call that is the one in question. Where is that person? In 2021, Steven Janice interviewed forensic expert Miriam Moya, who, after examining the autopsy report, concluded that Ray's injuries were more consistent with having been struck by a car than by a fall. Allison claimed the official medical examiner pulled her aside and privately told her she didn't believe his injuries were consistent with a fall either. If that really is the case, it could be that Ray was struck by a car, either intentionally or unintentionally, and then placed in the abandoned conference room to cover up the crime. Why they would have placed his personal effects on the roof near the hole, I don't know. Maybe they thought that would look more believable. And again, how his glasses and cell phone didn't get damaged if he was hit by a car is a question mark. Sure, maybe the real story is that Ray had a psychotic break, during which he was able to keep working, by the way, and he suddenly and without warning decided to kill himself without leaving an actual note explaining why, and in so doing also gained the superhuman ability to jump out 45 feet from a roof no one saw him access in the first place, or from a lower roof, which wasn't tall enough to provide a lethal fall, and left him with injuries not consistent with a fall from either roof. Ultimately, none of these scenarios make sense unless you suspend some degree of disbelief. Seemingly impossible deaths are hard to fathom in this way. An injury here, a clue there, just might not match up with what's known. And what was known about Ray Rivera was both solid and liquid, He was a star athlete who was undeniably good at water polo. He also had unfulfilled dreams and what appeared as rampant anxiety surrounding his work and greater purpose. Loved ones of Ray and followers of this story may never know the story behind the hole in the roof and the man who was found dead below. But no life or death is without its own discreet tale. Something devastating happened to Ray Rivera, but... It's like a screenplay that's missing a second act. We can try to fill in the blanks, but it will only ever be a terribly dissatisfying kind of fan fiction. The only thing we can know for sure is the awful ending. Next time on Strange and Unexplained... On a remote, snowy farm in Bavaria in 1910, an entire family and their hapless maid are slaughtered. Some claim to know who committed this horrific act, but they may never tell. The Hinterkaifeck murders. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a topic for something you'd like to hear covered, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop and edited by Eve Kerrigan. Our audio mixer and engineer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Andrea Jones Sojola, Ryan Garcia, and Luther Creek. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook group to join in the conversation.